This is Guns and Butter. When Putin says the collapse of the Soviet Union was a tragedy, I would agree with that. I think the unipolar world and the U.S. world domination of the type that we've seen has been an absolute disaster because it has brought out the worst, the absolute worst in U.S. society, in the parties, in cultural life. Right? This has been uh, a dark age precisely because there was no effective counterweight. So I would say Putin is doing an important public service by providing a counterweight, by containing or checking these sociopathic uh, impulses of U.S. imperialism and NATO and the, the British and the French and so forth, right? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Ukrainian Crisis in Historical Context. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. On today's program, we discuss his article, Metaphysical Doubts, Concerning the Existence of Modern Ukraine, a 1918 Creation of the German General Staff. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you so much. With regard to the uh, present-day crisis in the Ukraine, uh, it looks as if the Ukrainians themselves, even some of those in the military, are not really interested in fighting, uh, fighting with Russia over this whole crisis to support this coup d'etat. How do you see it? Well, I think you've you've pulled on the thread that leads to some extremely interesting consequences in analyzing this this entire crisis now between January, February, March, April of 2014. Uh, If we look at the um, Ukrainian Republic, as it calls itself, with its capital in Kiev, What strikes us is that uh, during the Crimean crisis, during the month of March primarily, what we found is that although there were Ukrainian military forces in the Crimea and, and, and nearby, they declined to resist the, um, the coming of Russian forces, you know, coming out of the Russian bases that were already there, the Ukrainians wouldn't, they wouldn't resist them. In other words, they wouldn't fight to defend their naval bases, their air bases, their army bases. They wouldn't fight to defend their headquarters. They wouldn't fight to defend their logistics. Uh, and then we had this interesting spectacle of the um, extreme right-wing or I would say fascist or even neo-Nazi government in in Kiev, um, putting out repeated calls for the mobilization of reservists. And uh, they've, I've sort of lost count after four to five of such calls. 
But it's clear that they're putting out these calls to mobilize the, the reserve army and that nobody is coming forward, that there is a, a tremendous unwillingness, certainly to fight for the likes of President Turchinov, who is an ally of um, the gas princess, Timoshenko, the great kleptocrat, the blonde lady who uh, came out of jail, or uh, the prime minister, Yatsenyuk, another ally of uh, Timoshenko, the gas princess. Nobody seems to be willing to risk their lives for these, for these people. And indeed, you have big chunks of the Ukrainian Navy, of the Ukrainian army, Ukrainian police force joining Russia. So this is, this is what you see. And then you read the newspaper accounts and you hear that John McCain is, is a great interpreter of these um, uh, ideas. He says, the Ukrainian people feel betrayed because the United States has not helped them. You go back to uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, who's been in the news these days, right? One of Lyndon B. Johnson in Nixon, one of their common expressions was, well, you know, if there's a threat from communism, then those Asian boys are going to have to carry the ball. And only when they do something, when they resist, can the United States do anything to help them. And I, I think in this case that this has gone by the board. Somehow the Ukrainian view, as interpreted by McCain and others, and I think it's authentic, uh, is that somehow it's up to the United States to pull the Ukrainian chestnuts out of the fire, even though the Ukrainians are unwilling to fight and die for their country, somehow the United States is supposed to do that. And this strikes me as absolutely outrageous, right? Absolutely unacceptable. And uh, I think um, this is a very you know, unjust indictment to send to the United States. So what I wanted to do then was to start from that and say, what is this, right? Where does this come from? What kind of country is Ukraine? Is this a country at all? Uh, I think it's worth remembering. Being a country, having a country, is not automatic. And uh, there's a very interesting literature, a lot of it conducted by Marxists, right, who are most interested in this, uh, this problem. You can look at Marx and Engels. You can look at Lenin. And my personal favorite, Rosa Luxemburg, in this, this area and what does it take to have a nation, right? What blocks of people have the wherewithal to become a country, right? It obviously requires a state, a nation state, an apparatus, right? Ministries, an army, a navy, perhaps. But it also requires culture. It requires uh, a certain experience of, of self-government plays a big role. And um, as Rosa Luxemburg pointed out, You've also got to have something like a full set economy. In other words, if, if you happen to be totally integrated into the economy of some larger entity, as Ukraine was, right, since it was built under the Soviet five-year plans, and, and even today you see that the, the economic viability of Ukraine uh, is practically non-existent, right? It cannot pay for gas. Uh, and its its entire economic orientation is to the east, to Russia. But at the same time, this gang of adventurers we have in Kiev, the fascists and their frontmen in, in business suits, they insist on orienting towards the, uh, the European Union. So what is this? And here's the thing that I found. 
you can make a preface to this. You can say, well, in the year 988, Kiev was the absolute center of Russian history because this is the moment where Grand Duke Vladimir of Kiev decides to convert to the Greek Orthodox Church in, um, in Constantinople. And this, of course, this has sweeping implications for all of Russian history, right? The presence of the, of the Orthodox Church is the huge uh, fact, right, starting in, in 988, and that has not changed. The, the entity that Grand Duke Vladimir was ruling over, though, did not call itself Ukraine. It called itself Russia, in effect. It's called the Kievan Rus, R-U-S, um, which, of course, is, is the origin of Russia, right, or Sometimes in, in Latin, it came across as Ruthenia, and you sometimes hear you know, Ukraine today described as Ruthenia, or sometimes also as Little Russia, along with White Russia, and of course, then, then Great Russia. So that's the Kievan Rus. But the Kievan Rus went out of existence in the 1200s because of the Mongols, right? Because of Genghis Khan and the Mongols that came, that came after him. And when the Mongol tide receded over many centuries. Much of Ukraine found itself under Poland. There was a very large Polish Republic stretching practically from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And then a lot of it found itself in the Russian Empire. And some of it also in the Austro-Hungarian or Austrian uh, Empire. So that's that's Kiev, right? And that's where Russia begins, right? As As Putin says, Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. Absolutely true. But this was never Ukraine, right? It's funny because Ukraine means something like the border, to the border, at the border, something like this. That's the cry, I guess, in the Ukraine. But the Kiev Rus, it wasn't the border of anything. It was the center of the Russian world at that time. So you look through your historical atlas and you're looking in the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, and into the 1900s, there is nothing on the map, a political entity that calls itself uh, Ukraine. It just does not exist. However, in the late 19th century, there was a movement among romantic historians in many parts of uh, Eastern, Southeastern Europe, Slavic Europe, uh, to try to unearth one's own national history, right? And some of them had a, you know, a fairly strong case, like the Czechs, right? Prague, and they had their historians who showed the role of the Czechs in the Thirty Years' War and so forth. But you get to Ukraine, and it's it's very, very thin. Uh, by the time of the American Civil War, I guess we could say the number of books that had been published in Ukrainian was less than 50 because Ukraine, Ukrainian was considered a dialect of Russian exclusively for peasants. And I think that that would still hold true. In other words, Ukrainian is a dialect of Russian under the influence of Polish, a kind of a merger of the two, with probably with the Russian element predominating, but a strong Polish emphasis coming in. But there never was such a country until World War One. Well, Webster, you have a new article out entitled Metaphysical Doubts Concerning <laughs> the Existence of Modern Ukraine, a 1918 creation 
of the German general staff. You describe the historical genesis of modern Ukraine as a nation called into being during World War One, but not by a popular movement of its own That's people. Right. That's right. And naturally, um, I have tried to lean on the people who have actually delved into the archives on this, and in particular two. One is the British historian Sir John Wheeler Bennett, who wrote the definitive account of the negotiations that went on in Brest-Litovsk in 1917-1918 involving Russia, Germany, Ukraine, Poland, Ottoman Empire, Austria, and others, right? That's one source, Sir John Wheeler Bennett. And John Wheeler Bennett was the head of the network. He's sort of the generation of a network that produced Kissinger in the next uh, generation. So this is uh, high-level British intelligence. And then we also have here Fritz Fischer, probably the most famous German historian uh, since World War II. And this is his book, uh, Germany's Grab for World Domination, which comes across in English as Germany's aims in the First World War. And I simply um, add my voice to these, because these are very different people, that uh, there was no Ukraine. In other words, this was... uh, a concept that existed for dreamers, for romantics, uh, professors, historians, poets, right? There was Taras Shevchenko, the the Ukrainian poet who made a big deal out of being Ukrainian, and some others. But this is, is very, very limited. Until we get into World War One, and here's sort of the way it happened. In September 1914, the Germans now realize that they're in a two-front war which they didn't want, but there they are, right? They've, they've lost the first Battle of the Marne. It's a two-front war. But uh, at the German foreign ministry in Berlin, there appear people who call themselves Ukrainians. And some of them come from the Russian Empire, direct or through different countries. And some of them come from the part of Ukraine that's in Austria-Hungary. So the country that's allied, the only ally uh, that the Germans had at this point. They'll get Turkey later, but at this moment, it's just Vienna, right? Berlin, Vienna. So these people say, they come to the German foreign ministry and they say, we're Ukrainians and we're here to help you. The German response is, what's a Ukrainian? Never heard of it. And they have to order all kinds of studies, right? Ethnography, what it is, the Ukrainians, right? How many of them, where, where is it? And so forth. And essentially, the idea begins to grow in the German foreign office that you can use this idea of Ukraine to create serious problems for the Russian empire. You can foment a rebellion, maybe, uh, if you if you do this right. And normally they would have tried Poland, right? Poland was the obvious one because this was much more developed because this had been a big, important, independent country for centuries up until the end of the 1700s, right, when it disappeared in the famous partitions of, of Poland. But Ukraine, again, there had never been Ukraine. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Ukrainian Crisis in Historical Context. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But here's what they did. The Germans began capturing starting in 1914, right, with, with uh, 
the Battle of Tannenberg and similar places. They began capturing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Russian prisoners of war. So then they began selecting them out and they'd say, okay, we're going to select out of this pool of the Russian prisoners of war, we're going to select the ones who come from places that we're going to call Ukraine, right? Because these these intellectuals we have, these studies that we've got, show us that this is where this the Ukrainian peasant dialect is spoken, right, among among the farmers. So they get them. Then they, they get the officers out and the non-coms out, the sergeants and so forth, and they're left with about 50,000 people in a special uh, prisoner of war camp. So the Germans then go to them and say, do you want to be exempted from work? Yes. Do you want to get special good treatment? Yes. The price of that is you're going to take classes. So they put them in luxurious, comparatively, prisoner of war camps back in Germany, right? Places, you know, that, that uh, they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And they start giving them classes on the idea of Ukraine, what it means to be a Ukrainian. You know, that you, you've been a Ukrainian all along and you didn't know it. But the problem is that the, the, these prisoners of war are not interested. They don't care. Ukraine means nothing to them. So then the Germans change tactics and they say, guess what? We're going to teach you agronomy and we're going to teach you, you know, how to be a good farmer. And this is extremely interesting to the POWs because they say, hmm, we're getting the idea that there's going to be a political upheaval in Russia and there's going to be a land reform and the estates are going to be broken up and we are going to get pieces of that. So this they like. And the Germans, as the war goes on, right, and their, their difficulties grow, they begin promoting revolution, communism. Right? Communism in many ways is something pushed by Field Marshal von Hindenburg and General von Ludendorff, the two military bosses of Germany, practically the dictators of Germany for much of this time. These are the guys who, remember, they shipped Lenin in the sealed train from Switzerland to Finland, right? Because they wanted to infect the uh, Tsarist Empire with the bacillus of communism. They thought that this would lead to chaos, right? They didn't expect this to lead to the Soviet state. Right? That was beyond their, beyond their uh, ability to predict. So they teach them Ukrainian idea as much as they can, how to be a good agronomist and farmer, animal husbandry and all this stuff, and the need for revolution. So this group, the people that actually pass the course are about 10,000. But by the time they get out, they're 10,000 revolutionary cadre. So they go back to Ukraine. Now, in the spring of 1917, we have the February Revolution in uh, St. Petersburg. The Tsar is overthrown. He has to abdicate. Kerensky comes in. And it's point, there are enough of these prisoner of war types, plus professors, plus poets, right, plus dreamers, who decide we're going to have an autonomous Ukraine. And they create what is known as the Ukrainian Rada. Right? Rada just means... Soviet, right? Same, same idea. Council. So the Ukrainian Rada comes about in Kiev, and at the beginning, it's uh, promoted by the Germans, right? Who by now are holding parts of this territory on the Eastern Front, 
as the czarist armies have retreated, the Germans have, have advanced. And uh, they decide that not only will they have uh, the Rada, but eventually they start thinking about full independence, right? Breaking, definitively breaking with the, uh, with the Russian Empire. And this is more or less where we get by the end of 1917, right? After the November Revolution in uh, St. Petersburg, right? We have the, the Bolsheviks, the communists with Lenin and Trotsky, they take over. And at that point, between December and January, Ukraine says, okay, we've had it. We're the independent country of Ukraine. And that's a nice idea. But of course, this Rada has no support. They have no state apparatus. They have no troops to speak of. So uh, what's going to happen? Well, there's a, a general armistice all along the Eastern Front in December 1917. And this negotiation process starts in this town of Brest-Litovsk. So what happens, though, is between January and February, the German general staff makes a deal with the Ukrainian Rada. And it, it goes like this. The German army will support the independence of Ukraine. And of course, without this, they couldn't have lasted for a minute because the Bolsheviks were, you know, constantly outside of Kiev, you know, shooting artillery into Kiev. They would have been overthrown within days or, or weeks at the most. But the, the German army says, we'll protect you. We'll make sure you stay in power. But here's what we want. And, and this is now the big issue is food, 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 food. There were hunger riots in Vienna in the summer of 1917 because, of course, the British and by now American British sea blockade does not let any food come into Germany. Right? People are starving in Berlin, in Vienna all over the place. They're not getting anything to eat. So the Germans say, look, the price of independence for you is this, one million tons of grain. During the year 1918, we want you to deliver one million tons of grain. Then we want 400 million eggs. It's amazing. They, they go through this accounting. We want 50,000 tons of beef, or maybe it's pounds, but a lot of beef. Uh, and we want flax, we want tungsten, and on and on. Eventually, they, they want coal, and they want all sorts of things that Ukraine produced, because Ukraine has this, this tremendously fertile black earth region. This is one of the things that the Europeans today want to buy up, right? They want to grab it at, at bargain basement prices. And there are coal mines and indeed uh, steel mills, because there was already something there although nothing like what the Soviets put up. So that's how Ukraine gets on the map. And this is called the bread piece of Brest-Litovsk, early February 1918. So the Germans are sponsoring Ukraine. And, uh, you know, you could say Ukraine is made in Germany. It's a creature of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, these, you know, reactionary monsters. It's the delicatessen of the German general staff, right? It's a supermarket, what have you. And in the middle of it, you've got this, this group called the Rada, and they are about as incompetent as this group that we see today, right? They're absolutely incapable of doing anything, right? They make ultimatums, they back down, they can't pay their bills, they're chaotic, right? It's exactly what we see right now. Fritz Fischer quotes uh, a British 
uh, diplomat from the British Foreign Office. And here's what he says in early 1918. He says, the present Ukrainian government is nothing else than a club of speculative political adventurers who are engaged in doing wonderful business with the support of German bayonets. So you could say that today, right? You look at these people, uh, not just uh, uh, Turchinov and Yatsenyuk, but Tianibok, you have the Svoboda Party, they're racist, they're anti-Semitic, they're neo-Nazi, they're reactionary. Then you have the right sector. Those guys are just, you know, brown shirts of the uh, of the Hitler type, not much difference, right? The late Muzichka, um, who has now gone to his reward, but, you know, people for whom killing and, and threats and beatings and so forth. This is the, the, the daily routine, except that this time it's NATO bayonets, right, that they'd like to be uh, based on, and, and the U.S. Well, now, you mentioned the bread, the bread piece of 1918, piece. Right? right? Is that what you're talking about right now, when they're supplying all this food to Germany? Well, uh, that was 1918, right? The Germans hope that they're going to get all this food. The irony is they don't get it. Uh, because the Ukrainian peasants uh, sabotaged the operation. And the Rada is too incompetent to deliver the food. So the Germans expect a million tons of grain. The estimate I've seen is that the whole operation, which goes on for more than a year, the Germans get 40,000 truckloads of various kinds of food. But that is a very, very bad uh, return. So what the Germans do is they say, we're going to kick out the Rada, and we're going to bring in a dictator. And the guy's name is Skoropadsky. And they say, now we're going to squeeze these Ukrainian peasants like a lemon. And ironically, the result of that is that the Ukrainian peasants begin to say, you know, the Russian Empire wasn't that bad. They're communists now, but they've still got to be better than this German puppet Skoropadsky. So in effect, the attempt to collect the food drives the Ukrainian peasants back into the arms by now of Moscow, right, of the Soviets, right, Lenin, Trotsky, and so forth. Now today, if you look at what's going to happen if, if the signs are fulfilled, right, the government in Kiev, the Kiev fascist clique, as I call them, they have agreed to the IMF conditionalities. That's also the demand of the uh, the European Union, and has been you know, since last autumn at the beginning of the crisis. They want the price of, of natural gas doubled. They want the social safety net to be savaged. No more help for pregnant women. No more help for nursing mothers. No more help for old people, sick people, children. Right? You go through the list. It's the usual savagery of the IMF conditionalities or, or memorandum, right, as it's known uh, after Greece. So uh, what you've got today is even if the current crisis does not push the eastern Ukraine back into, into the, the arms of Russia, as soon as you get a new regime and they start imposing this deadly, murderous austerity ordered by the IMF and the European Union and the European Central Bank, the Troika, then that's going to do it, right? That's going to be the destruction of, uh, of Ukraine. And people who want to secede from Ukraine are running, of course, they're running away from the neo-Nazis, anti-Semites, and hooligans who rule in Kiev. 
But they're also running from the idea that they don't want to go through the IMF shock therapy meat grinder, uh, some of them for the second time, right? Because some of them were, were part of it when it was Russia. So as a result of that, after some episodes in the, the Civil War, right? You got to remember these people like um, Denikin and Kornilov and Wrangel, right? The white armies, the white armies that tried to put an end to the uh, communist rule in Moscow, they, they were generally based on the Black Sea. And essentially, you look at this, in both world wars, the, uh, the Germans occupied Odessa and Sevastopol in the Crimea, in both world wars. And after World War I, the French came back and occupied Odessa and uh, Sevastopol. And of course, these are precisely the cities that the British and the French had occupied during the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856. So if you're a Russian, you'd have to say, well, first of all, Ukraine and the north coast of the Black Sea, right? What's called the Pontic Steppe, right? The land north of the Black Sea. They say that's an integral part of Russia. Not only is it an integral part of Russia, but it is one of the main avenues of attack that has been used by the British, the French, the Germans, and you know, everybody else who wanted to attack Russia have tried it also using that, that area. So at that point, Ukraine is back in. They become the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Ukrainian Crisis in Historical Context. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then we have Khrushchev uh, in the 50s making this very foolish transfer of the, uh, the Crimea and the, and the coast to, to Ukraine, which uh, it, it had not been. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves now. The other thing that you got to point out is when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941, uh, you have this guy, Bandera, Stefan Stepan Bandera. He is the darling of Maidan. He is the spiritus rector of the Svoboda party of Chanibok. And these people have, what, five, six ministers in the government. Yes, they, they were the, the one that, that carried out the recent coup d'etat. Well, you know, it's it's Timoshenko forces got the best jobs, the presidency and the prime ministership. But then there's a big piece of the cabinet that comes from the Svoboda party, who are neo-fascist. And then there's the right sector, who are the hooligans who, who did, you know, a lot of the, the street fighting. Right. So that would be uh, Yarosh once again and the late uh, Muzichka, who got killed in recent fighting. So they all love Stepan Bandera. And where does this come from? Well, as the Wehrmacht and the SS are approaching uh, Lvov, right? The Soviets are retreating, the Nazis are advancing. Bandera essentially says, I'm going to show Hitler, whom I've been working with, right? Because he, he was a German agent for some years in advance. Uh, he says, I'm going to show Hitler that I'm the guy who should be the, uh, the satrap, right? Make me viceroy of the independent Ukraine and uh, everything will be great, right? That's Stepan Bandera. So the way he tries to show his suitability to be the Nazi gauleiter of Ukraine is he also starts killing Jews. He goes on a pogrom and he kills many, many 
uh, Jewish residents of, of Laval and as much territory as he can control. And this is the idol of these people. And therefore, it is absolutely accurate that they are neo-Nazis, they are anti-Semites, they are racists. And uh, I think from an American point of view, this is a real scandal, right, that you have Victoria Nuland gets up there and says, well, we've invested $5 billion in essentially building the fascist movement of uh, Ukraine. I, I know where the $5 billion could be uh, put to work for the American people and not for a bunch of Ukrainian fascists. But this is the, the USAID and Project Democracy, right, the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, then there's money going to Freedom House. Uh, I believe, and, uh, and certain other groups, right? Who knows? The uh, the Gene Sharp apparatus, right? The Albert Einstein Institute. I'm sure they get some get some freebies in the process. I would urge one of the lessons from the U.S. point of view: these agencies must be defunded. And for the USAID, they can go on doing food aid. That's fine, but not building up fascist movements uh, under the guise of. Uh, democracy and civil society and the things that they say. All right. So we've had Petliura and the pogroms of 1919 and Stepan Bandera. So the idea is once Ukraine is on its own, the knee-jerk reaction seems to be start killing Poles, Jews, or Russians, if you can do that too. And they, they did that as much as they could in, in 1941. So this is a very checkered record. Now, they go back into the Soviet Union when the Red Army comes in. This Stepan Bandera goes to Munich, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, the CIA complex, uh, and he works with Alan Dulles and uh, Arnold Galen, right, of the Nazis, and they run assassinations and low-level terrorism in the Ukraine well into the 1950s until the KGB sends a representative to Munich and they manage to kill Stepan Bandera with some kind of um, poison gas or something of this, this type. But that's the idol. In other words, that's, that's the founding father. That's the, um, again, the, the, the star in the pantheon for these people. Now, Yeah, for the rioters in, in Maiden, right? Yeah, so, right. But then how did, how did Ukraine become a country in 1991? Yes, that's, that is exactly the, the next step. Now, you got to remember... 1991, people lived through it, but I, I'm, I'm afraid the Western press never really you know, did justice to these events. In, in the spring of 1991, there was a referendum which said, do you want to stay in a country that is going to be called the Union of Soviet Sovereign Republics? Socialism dropped out. Do you want to stay in this? And this was held in uh, lots of places, right? In Russia, RSFSR, you know, Moscow, in white Russia, in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan. Essentially, many of the five Central Asians would have been glad to stay. The people who wanted out were essentially the Baltics, right? Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, there was a mass movement to leave the Soviet Union, foreign, and in the, uh, the Caucasus, right? Armenia. I think, but Azerbaijan and Georgia, for sure, they wanted out. So these six little countries, fine, they, they wanted to leave, whatever that was going to look like. But uh, there would have been a possibility to keep, essentially, the Soviet Union more or less intact. Now, when Putin says, 
the collapse of the Soviet Union was a tragedy. I would agree with that. I think the unipolar world and the U.S. world domination of the type that we've seen has been an absolute disaster because it has brought out the worst, the absolute worst in U.S. society, in the parties, in cultural life. Right? This has been uh, a dark age precisely because there was no effective counterweight. This poor drunk Yeltsin was incapable of doing it. So I would say Putin is doing an important public service by providing a counterweight, by containing or checking these sociopathic uh, impulses of U.S. imperialism and NATO and the, the British and the French and so forth, right? That we needed more of this. Uh, and it, it's good that we've finally gotten it. And I would also say that we don't want Ukrainian fascism to thrive. We want it to be strangled in the cradle, right? There's a good Roman proverb, right? Principius obsta, right? That evil has to be nipped in the bud. And it's high time that this happened. So I would think that there's a positive role there. But now, how did this come about? In the spring of 1991, there's this referendum. Do you want to stay in the union of Soviet sovereign republics? Ukraine votes 75% yes, we want to stay. That's in, I think, April. But then you have the August coup. You have the KGB bosses, the defense complex bosses, and others, interior ministry. They try to go back to an authoritarian state, right? And whether Gorbachev is with them or halfway with them, Yeltsin comes out on top with the help of the West, right? International mobilization of uh, the world community, as it's called, right? Under U.S., British uh, auspices, to be sure. So after this, though, here's a problem. Most of the component republics of the Soviet Union supported the August coup. And in particular, the head of Ukraine, Leonid Kravchuk, was the party boss of Ukraine in 1990-1991. And Kravchuk had been on the side of this committee of the eight or nine who seized power in, um, in Moscow, right? So he was potentially in big trouble, right? Yeltsin could have gone to him and said, I'm indicting you for treason because you opposed you know, me. You supported the coup. So what happened in the very few days after the August coup was that in just about every one of these union republics, the local oligarchs, the so-called nomenklatura, made the following calculation. If we stay in the Soviet Union, we may be indicted for treason, for supporting a coup d'etat. But if we declare independence, we can whip up a demagogic wave of nationalism. Now, there was, as that 75% in Ukraine shows, there was no wave of, you know, we want the independent Ukraine. It just never, it never happened. It never has happened, right? It didn't happen in 1918. It didn't happen in, in 1941. Uh, it just, it, it just was never there. But Kravchuk said, I'm going to play the national chauvinist card and save myself and my power elite, right? And this, this apparatus. And it worked. And that was imitated everywhere. And the whole thing fell apart. And you remember in December, late December of 1991, the heads of what? Uh, Russia, Ukraine, and white Russia signed something saying the Soviet Union is dissolved, right? 
and I again I would say that is that is a tragedy because that has brought us, you know, you name it: the Iraq War, the Afghan War, uh, the mm-hmm. bombing of Yugoslavia, all these things that would not have happened, right? And a, a lot of grief for the world. So there never was a great demand in Ukraine. Now there was in December of 1991 when all of this was said and done. There was a referendum which was 90 percent in favor of leaving right, of an independent country. But now what it is, it's basically, do you want to stay in the same country with the August coup? No. And one other thing was that Yeltsin had gone public in October of 1991 saying, I'm going to have shock therapy. I'm going to bring in the IMF. I'm going to, I'm going to privatize. I'm going to have price reform. Right? We're going to have hyperinflation. So a lot of people would say, well, <laughs> we're getting out of here, right? We're going to scram out of here. We're going to vote to leave you because we don't want to be in shock therapy. And that was a big uh, part of the breakup of the uh, Soviet Union. How is this uh, coup d'etat in Ukraine by Ukrainian fascists affecting Europe as a whole? And does the U.S. really not care about its negative effect on Europe? I, I think what you, you see is it's a negation of reality. It, it's what I would actually call clinical hysteria. The basic meaning of hysteria is the rejection of obvious palpable facts or the rejection of reality, put it that way. Whatever Putin is doing in in, uh, Crimea or eastern Ukraine, whatever his methods are, the methods at worst are the same methods that NATO has been using in Kiev. In other words, the color revolution methods and the methods that Putin have been using, these are are comparable. It's like a self-parody when Kerry comes out and says – or Samantha Power, right? How dare you have a coordinated professional campaign of subversion of an existing government? Was this is exactly what they themselves did? Or as Churkin said, you know, if if it's illegal to seize government buildings, and you call that, you know, aggression, then why didn't you say the same thing when all those government buildings in Kiev were being occupied and burned, even in January and February, as as part of this? sort of color revolution 2.0 coup with a lot of violence, right? With a lot of Molotov cocktails and snipers and, and firearms and killing. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Ukrainian Crisis in Historical Context. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But what about German-Russian economic integration? Doesn't this well, make sense that, that, for Germany? So why would Germany support sanctions on Russia? This is, well, they don't. I guess the short answer is that, that when it really comes to it, they don't. Uh, you got to remember, though, this habit of uh, subordination, right, of cringing uh, obedience to the Anglo-Americans is very deep. And in Germany, it's especially deep because of the world wars and the occupation and so forth. So what happened with this was Merkel, of course, I think she's a fool. Uh, and, and she's a profoundly stupid woman who spouts the garbage that her advisors tell her. You also have to remember, she, she grew up a commie. <laughs> she comes from East Germany, but with a difference. And her father was a Lutheran minister in East Germany. But unlike many Lutheran ministers, her father was a collaborationist. Her father played ball with the commies. And that's why Merkel is who she is, where she is. Because her father was a, a communist collaborator in 
East Germany. She got to go to university. She got to become a chemist. She got her entire post-communist career out of this fact, right? And this was not really that common among convinced Lutheran ministers in East Germany. So she shoots her mouth off all the time. And then, you know, these people, we have Volkswagen and uh, Siemens, I think, and a number of very big, uh, highly successful German export companies saying, essentially, they say behind the scenes, you know, shut up, back off. And the way they've, they've also done it is they sent out Helmut Schmidt, who I, I, I think is a, is a very interesting uh, figure. Helmut Schmidt, of course, was chancellor between the 70s and the 80s. And if you want to look for an elder statesman in Germany, it's Helmut Schmidt. I would actually say in the world, it may well be Helmut Schmidt. Uh, he's about 90, and um, he, he has a, always a, a highly interesting take on things. And Helmut Schmidt's line is to say, what Putin is doing is completely understandable, given Russian history, Russian security needs, and so forth, and we should simply cool it. Right? We should not engage in these things. And very soon after that, Merkel said, okay, no more sanctions. But she's always being pressed by the British, the U.S., to, uh, to go further down this road. What about the natural gas lines uh, running into and through Ukraine from Russia? How, how does the import and export of gas affect the present crisis? I mean, with regard well, to Europe as well. You go back to the early 70s, right? There was the Oranienburg pipeline. This was the first of the big Russian-Soviet uh, gas lines to Western Europe. And all the U.S. warhawks were saying, no, 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 we don't want that because that'll create dependence. Well, there are three big lines that go from east, you know, the Russian gas fields to, to Germany, to Italy, and then to some others. But those are the two. Those are also the ones that are going to get destroyed if economic sanctions go through. Germany will suffer the most and Italy uh, close behind, right? Those, those are the ones. Now, Putin has attempted to go around the Ukraine by building the Nord Stream pipeline, which goes from Russian territory directly to Germany. And the purpose of this is to avoid these turbulent unstable countries, be it Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, and I'm afraid Poland also might fall into this category under people like the Kaczynski twins. But the Nord Stream is working. That's fine. And then he wanted to do the South Stream, right, from the Black Sea across Turkey, the Balkans, and then Italy, and then into Europe uh, that way. Uh, and that has not been built. The U.S. has successfully blocked that one. Now, the question, therefore, is, the Ukrainians say, we won't pay, we can't pay. Well, up to now, the Russians have been subsidizing Ukraine with a price that is way below the market price. But if you want a political price, you've obviously got to fulfill political conditions, right? Good neighbor kind of stuff, right? No hysterical Russophobia neo-Nazi campaigns. But no, that's what the boys from Lvov uh, that's their stock in trade. So at this point, Putin is saying to them, you know, you guys love the market, I know. Pay the market price. That's all he's saying. We're not prepared to subsidize you when you're a hostile country. I don't, I don't see anything so scandalous about this. Now, how could they, in fact, exist? I would say two things. They have to be a neutral country. They actually passed a law in 2010 that they would be neutral. Uh, again, like 
like Sweden after World War II, like Finland, like Switzerland, like Austria. All these were neutral. All did fine. Uh, and it means you cannot join NATO. Anybody who wants Ukraine to join NATO should have his head examined. Kissinger says no. Brzezinski says no. Uh, Helmut Schmidt says no. Anybody who knows anything says no, no, no. We don't want to drive the, the NATO uh, states right up to the Russian border because also because in, 19, uh, in 1991, Madfred Werner, the head of NATO, promised Moscow, Gorbachev, that there would not be any more expansion of NATO. They even said, we won't let the NATO forces into East Germany. <laughs> and of course, what they've done is they've got Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, right? all of these are NATO members. Georgia wants to be a NATO member. No, no, no. And again, from the American point of view, you want to fight and die for some tin pot fascist like Saakashvili of Georgia or Yarosh. Yarosh wants to have Ukrainian nuclear missiles that he can fire at the world. No, I'm sorry. This cannot be. So the one side is neutrality. You can call it Finlandization, right? You got to remember, Finland in World War II worked with Hitler, was an ally of the Nazis, hand in glove with Hitler. At the end of World War II, Stalin wisely said, look, we're not going to roll you over. We're going to let you exist. But here are the conditions. You don't join NATO and you suppress wild anti-Soviet, anti-Russian opinion. We can't tolerate that. So you're going to crack down on these people. That worked pretty well. The other thing then is this question of a confederation. In other words, it's clear there are two parts, right? It would be like Austria-Hungary, right? Like a dual monarchy, but a confederation with a, uh, a capital that would do defense and foreign policy and nothing else. So all the police powers and all the rest of that would be more than the U.S., right? Because it would be not a federation, but a confederation, which is weaker, right? Like the Confederate States of Ukraine. It would have a very weak uh, central uh, government, and that would then allow the East and the West to coexist. But of course, the people from Lvov say, no, we demand it all. I think the people from Kharkov and Donetsk are more reasonable. They just say, look, we just want, we want our own autonomous uh, region. But I don't, I don't see that lasting very long as a perspective, precisely because the, the people in the, uh, the fascist forces are such chauvinists that they, they wouldn't uh, accept it. So the idea is neutral and a confederation. Now, what's a good example, right? A, a country that's even more divided than Ukraine, where you have people speaking French, German, Italian, Reto Romanish, right? It's Switzerland. Switzerland is a confederation. The official name of Switzerland is Confederatio Helvetica. That's the Latin name of the country. That's the real name. And then uh, it's neutral. And it's been neutral for you know several hundred years. And they do fine. Right? And if this is not my idea of a country, but for them, it's just what they need. Well, the other alternative, of course, is that uh, that it becomes reintegrated into Russia, right? Yes, certainly the entire part, uh, I, I, I'd like to say east of the Dnieper River, but it's more than that. It's, uh, it's really a kind of a diagonal line that goes from north of Kharkov across the Dnieper and down towards uh, Odessa, because Odessa is a classic Russian uh, city as well. So it would be a third and perhaps more than a third of the existing land 
mass that I think um, at the current rate, it looks like this. If the right sector sends fascist thugs with weapons to try to attack these um, buildings in eastern Ukraine, then Russia will have to uh, intervene to restore order was the 19th century expression. And, and that, that's fine with me. I have no compunctions about this. The U.S. owes Ukraine exactly nothing. Nothing. There's no treaty. They're not in NATO. This is not our responsibility. And anybody who says it is crazy. Now, what was CIA Director John Brennan doing in Kiev? <laughs> well, we, the, the weekend that he was there, which is this past weekend, right? The weekend being the, uh, what, the 12th and 13th of, uh, of April. Uh, on the second day of his visit, the, the puppet president, uh, Turchinov, said, we're going to use violence. We're going to use military force against protesters who are occupying these buildings. Now, you remember, the entire diplomatic establishment of NATO kept telling Yanukovych, don't use force. Don't use force. I think Yanukovych had reasons of his own not to use force. But he, Yanukovych ends up as chicken Kiev, right? He could have dispersed these fascists with a little bit of gunfire, right? Uh, but he didn't do it. In this case... Uh, the order is coming from from Brennan not to exercise restraint or to avoid civilian losses, but by all means, go in there and, and do the killing. And the last thing I think that is relevant is to ponder this from the human point of view, because I've tried to argue that what Putin is doing is uh, highly beneficial for the world. The world needs an approximate balance. It needs some kind of a counterweight to this preponderance of the U.S., which, again, has brought out the worst of American society at home and abroad and uh, is, is simply not viable. And it's got to end. And it, we're just hoping it would end uh, peacefully because it has been a, a terrible, you know, just think of the Iraq war as a typical uh, event or the bombing of Libya, right? These horrendous things that have gone on, the bombing of Yugoslavia, acts of colossal historical vandalism. Putin is essentially there to somehow push back, to contain that. I would actually go further. I would say, if you look at what is Putin um, requesting, right? What, what does he want, right? All the commentators ask this. Um, he obviously wants Russian interests to be respected, right? Not attacked, not wiped out. And even further, I think you know, we, we got a solution for the Ukraine. We ought to think about a solution for the world. I would say a Russian-U.S. condominium would be the answer for Europe, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, at minimum, and maybe beyond that. In other words, the U.S. and Russia working together, for example, would be able to do what Kerry can't do, to impose a solution on the Israelis and the Palestinians, who otherwise will never agree, right? whatever you think, uh, a reasonable solution, because we cannot have these little countries, whatever they are, right, and these places like Ukraine, you cannot have these places causing world conflagrations. It's just not worth it. There's a, there's a very good quote from Bismarck where he says, I just hope that some big war doesn't start with some stupid thing in the Balkans. Well, that was Sarajevo, right, 100 years ago. Sarajevo, 100 years ago this spring. 
right? Was the stupid thing in the Balkans that caused, you know, 25 million people to lose their lives, right? One of the greatest catastrophes of, of civilization. So what we would need is this U.S.-Russian joint approach. Then you could simply impose a solution on Ukraine. If people are recalcitrant, if they're going to be unreasonable, then the interest of uh, world stability, international peace and security, and economic development could be brought in. What I'm trying to say is when you look, you compare these people, right? You compare the Russians who have been through the mill, right? They've been wiped out economically. They had hyperinflation in 1992. They had hyperdeflation in 1998. They lost their country, right? They've been shocked all these different ways. Somehow these individuals are bigger. They're more complete. They're less mutilated, less deformed, less decadent, less degenerate than the specimens we see on the other side. So what you're seeing is imperialism in action. And whether a person can have integrity or whether somebody can become great or not generally depends on what a given social formation is willing to accept, how much reality. So I'd have to say the ability of the United States political establishment culturally to accept reality is extraordinarily low, whereas the Russians, I think they are much more reality oriented and that's a huge kind of um, plus that they that they have going but i i would urge everybody to think about it also in those terms webster tarpley thank you very much thank you I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Ukrainian Crisis in Historical Context. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and Just Too Weird, Bishop Romney, and the Mormon Takeover of America. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at againstausterity.org. Visit his website at tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. Trying to steal your life
police. You dig me? 